This episode brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Run the Jewels, the duo of Killer Mike and LP, just released their fourth album, RTJ4, and it's already become one of the most acclaimed releases of the year. As you probably know, there's something of a two-man supergroup slash odd couple who were deep into careers of their own before they joined forces back in 2013. Killer Mike was a member of Outkast's Dungeon Family before becoming a solo artist. LP came up from the New York underground rap scene. He was in that group company, Flow. And their new album is incredibly timely. And there's also some high-profile guests, everyone from Zach DeLaBroca and Pharrell to 2 Chains, Greg Nice, Mavis Staples, Josh Homme even. Killer Mike was also a, a really prominent Bernie Sanders supporter. And you probably heard about a speech he made recently directed at protesters in his native Atlanta. My colleague Jamil Smith recently had a great long chat with Killer Mike, which we're going to bring you today on this episode. You can also go on to YouTube and check out the video version if you're so inclined. So I'm going to turn it right over to Jamil. Run the Jewels began as this spontaneous collaboration between UNL. Uh, how has the mission and the music changed over the years for y'all? How do you think this album is different? The mission always remains the same. It's for me and LP to be the rawest, most brutal, wildest, illest rap group ever. You know what I'm saying? That, that The mission is that. So the mission is first and foremost to do what every 15-year-old boy of, you know, of, of our age group wanted to do. And that should be the fiercest MC in the world. And I think that that's what makes Run the Jewels dope. So from the time that Jason DeMarco, who's an executive at Adult Swim, put me and LP in the same room together, he heard what no one heard before. He heard the cornerstone of the Def Jux, you know, sound. And he heard this Southern MC that was strongly influenced by Ice Cube. And he, he saw before even we saw that essentially this was, this was a dream group inspired by, by Bomb Squad and Ice Cube's time together, right? I think Jason got that. Within three hours of knowing LP and recording rap music, I understood that. Literally within three hours, I called Jason like, he has to do the entire album. And this was the rap music album. And then later, L have dropped Cancel for Cure. Um, L owed a mixtape and it took him a long time to write. So after we toured those two albums together, after we really built a, a, a bond and a friendship around music and our love of rap music, um, what we did was we, we went in and, and I just jumped on a mixtape with him. Like, you ain't got to carry the load by yourself. I'm jumping on every record with you. And um, we decided to come as a group called Run the Jewels. And L pitched the name. I fronted like I was, and I was like, I'm going to sleep on it. But I love the name because I was down for train robberies. Like, I was I'm like, I'm like, hell yeah. Like, I'm down to take Jordan starter jackets. You know what I'm saying? Jordan jeans. Let's get it. And um, he sent the next morning this. Yeah, I was going to ask you about, I was going to ask what, you about this. When I saw that and it had a chain, when I saw that, I went crazy because if, so we're the same age. If you were on any train or public transportation bus, and you were uh, uh, born in, say, mid to late 70s, and a kid walked up to you in the 80s or 90s and said, run the Jordans, run the starter jacket, run the jewels, you knew I'm going to fight to keep this shit on my neck or my back or my feet, or I'm just going to give it up. So if you remember L, 
LL Cool J's cheesy rap blues where he raps about falling off, then says, you know, everybody put your hands in the air, leave them there, run the juice. And that, that's the spirit of it. It was, right. it was two underground rappers that realized we had found dopeness in each other, and together we were strong as a unit. And our whole shit was rap is going to have to run us to juice. We're going, we're going to be the most brazen, raw, audacious rap group ever in our fantasy. Now, we never saw that. Not we never saw, but happiness for us was 1,000 to 1,500 people shows and being booked, you know, 100 shows mm -hmm. a year. You know what I'm saying? And, and I, that was like, we were happy to be doing three to 500 people shows selling out. Like, we were excited because we both still viewed ourselves as underground rappers. What we didn't understand, but what I saw is the, the sound that we were continuing was based in classic hip-hop, right, in terms of the boom badness of it, the anger of it, the fierceness, the brashness of it. And we, we were doing this at a time where rap had just began to get intelligent enough to say, women buy more records. Let's pivot toward getting on daytime radio. So getting on radio from 10 in the morning to 5 in the, five in the afternoon, those songs that were melodic, that played to the cubicle crowd, they made more sense to do. But as rappers, we were doing damn near the antithesis. But it made us glaringly different from everything else. We didn't become everything else. Yeah, but I mean, it's funny that you mentioned like the OLL stuff and that old spirit because that's actually the vibe I got when I listened to your first album together because I felt like it, it kind of transported me to back like when I first started listening to hip hop and it does. fun. Yeah, had when, you know, when we were kids listening to this stuff, the energy that came with it, but also just like you could tell the artists were having fun doing exactly. it. You know what I mean? Because they were having exactly. fun coming up with the rhymes, coming Absolutely. up with like the styling with it, and Absolutely. just experimenting with it. Because there's a vibe that's almost like, you know, like you're improvising, you know, when yeah. you guys are doing it. It's great. I am purely improvised because I don't write. You know, L is structured. He's the best rapper producer in the world. And I say that unequivocally. You know, you can you can throw some arguments out there that I have to say, well, we got to debate it, but it's a true argument. But with him, he writes every one of his raps. He does those beats. So he's much more measured and disciplined. That's what I've kind of taken and learned from him. But in terms of improvisation, all this shit you hear is just straight out of my head. It's something comes through me and comes out of me, and that's, that's it. So that's part of the beauty of Run the Jewels because – We've given something to each other. I think I've brought L a spirit of improvisation and what the fuck, let's try it. And we both have the what the fuck, let's try it. But I mean, improvisation in the moment. I think I brought him and what he's given me is an appreciation for consistency and discipline. So how do you feel like, you know, over the years, that addition of structure for you and that addition of improvisation for him has, you know, affected your style? I mean, you hear it in every one of the jewels, it grows. You know, you have, yeah. there are records where you hear me doing a blatantly Southern rap pattern, you know, and, and L coming in and doing that version of his pattern. There are songs where you hear me measured tempo flowing like a Rakim straight out of the East Coast school. So we get an opportunity to play with these two different schools of rap. Me being from Atlanta, Georgia, um, him being from New York, it's, I think it's given us a lot, you know. I think we are... We, I said this is License to Kill with a License to Ill on one of the It is, to me, the best of the beasties in NWA. You know what I mean? And, and, and without, without getting stuck in that moment in that sound, like we aren't a retro angry group where we're like, it used to be like this. And we're, you know, we're furthest from. We're like, 
we're on our tour bus stoned as hell listening to Ray Schremer and Future. You know what I'm saying? I'm listening to the little baby. Like, we, we love it all. With me and L, man, first and foremost, it's fun. And first and foremost, it's based in what we find glorious about hip-hop and song-making and writing. And I think that, you know, I just want to keep it that way. Like, I, understand, I know that we yeah. say things that matter. And I don't think we're ever going to stop saying things that matter. But what matters most is that you give people joy. And you know what I'm saying? And, 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 yeah. and our records really, Ooh La La is about bringing joy. You know what I'm saying? The same joy that Dwick made me feel now, you know, 20 some odd years later, I get to, to sample in hip hop because sampling matters. You know, I'm a fan of sampling. We get to mm -hmm. sample a record that brought us so much joy as young people. And my 13 year old daughter and her friends, you know what I'm saying? That's just joy. And that's, that's another thing I love about being in this rap group that's almost viewed as like a band is that we've had so many shows on the come up and run the jewels um, one and two, where we would see a kid or two, like, like, there's some, like, that's a fucking 14 year old child. Like, why is this? Kid? And, and they're, and they'll be with their dad and their dad will be of our age and have like, I'll say on a Wu-Tang shirt or run the jewels shirt or, you know, an old Nas shirt, an outcast shirt, but you'll know that this dad is passing down his love of hip hop to his children. And we see more and more of that, you know what I'm saying? And, and like, that's what I love because that's my, my oldest son. That's what I used to do with him, ride around, listen to old tapes, discuss music. Like two birthdays ago, all he asked me for was uh, AZ's Do or Die tape. You know what I'm saying? That is, that's yeah. to me, that yeah. passing that, that musical joy on. So I'm happy to be um, like my dad turning me on the P-Funk, you know what I'm saying? Funkadelic and turning me on the Led Zeppelin. And you know what I'm saying? That's yeah. my dad took me to see the fat boys, you know what I'm saying? Like, at, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm very proud to be a dad rap group. I'm right. glad to be giving that energy without, you know, the, Oh, I don't have to dig up an old sound. I don't have yeah. to say it was better then. All I have to do is be my best now. And I think that's what me and L focus on, on giving y'all the best experience with everyone, the jewels. That's what's up. Yeah, he took me back with the Fat Boys reference. Um, yeah, come on, man. The Fat Boys is hard. Folks be slipping. They be no, slipping because no. they, they, they think it's a stick. Like, oh, they were fat. They used to pop up, pop up. No, man. It wasn't Bill no Boys was rapping. Cool Roski, Prince Marky D, quit playing, man. <laughs> and they could dress. And they had to dap the damn Gucci suits with their Dita superstars and top tiers and forms. Like, stop playing, man. The Fat Boys documentary is waiting to be made, straight up. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> I want to ask you about this fourth album, though. Uh, so, yes. You know, it's, it's, it's out. It's getting, you know, the reviews are good. I actually read one that said it's right on time. Yeah. How do you feel like it's right on time, you know, for this moment? I, I think that the times that are in front of us now are always there. The environment for the bottle, for the pipe to finally burst are always there. And I mm -hmm. think that if you listen to my music and Elle's music consistently as solo artists and together, you're really hearing the, not the same things. You're hearing similar things pop back up because they never go away. I can't, once you see certain things, you can't unsee them. I don't like being right. Elle doesn't like being right, but it's important we say what's right. And <laughs> I don't, we're not going to try to beat you 10 songs with that, but you're going to get those little things in there because they naturally just come out. You know what I'm saying? And my thing is, I don't, if you're driven to draw like that as an artist, do what drives you. If you're driven to rap or sing like that, do what drives you. That's not the totality or the sum of what Ellen and I are, but that is some of what we are. And it, it's always going to be in our music. I'm glad yeah. to see, though, the times mm -hmm. are finally prepped because 
in this moment right here, we have an opportunity to change the American legislation process in terms of making sure that policemen are held accountable. We have an opportunity to seize the moment where money does not matter over the cost of human life. We could nail a few things out through legislation by voting and just socially, the way we interact mm -hmm. and treat one another. You know what I'm saying? Which is, which is, yeah. and I's friendship defies logic to some people. The people that are on polarized opposites, it defies logic, but to us it's as normal as two kids who just fucking like LL Cool J. And, and I right. think that, I think that whether it's our actual friendship and it providing that, or it's the music that encourages people that they're not insane or crazy, or just to give them a joy-filled bop. I, I think all that's important. But I'm happy that, and that this time, we land right on time so our music can be the soundtrack to progress. And that's what it feels like it is right now. Yeah, I want to get a little deeper into the specific moment in a little bit. But I want to first ask you about sort of the political efficacy of hip-hop today. You know, a lot of artists are vocal on social media and in interviews. But where do you see the political possibility in the music itself these days. Uh, do you wish that rap was more openly political? No. Mm. I wish that people who have the true knowledge, wisdom, and understanding within rap were more op openly political. Rap, mm. I gotta give credit, is the only American musical genre that I've heard that's popular. It's not, it's not say, like, uh, gospel-based or or even jazz-based, because jazz was kind of politicized with, you know, that making illegal of marijuana and bringing people together in those underground clubs. But everyone in rap has consistently said something. Future said something about police brutality. Um, Thug has said something about it. Tupac said something about it. Biggie, Eminem said something about it. Hole, Nas, Outkast, Goody Mob, Wu-Tang. The Alcoholics have said something about it. Farside. So we've been one of the most responsible genres, even in matters I, I rap get a bad rap in terms of women's men's issues. What I've loved about rap since I was a kid is if you got a too short, you're going to have a response record on that with girls rapping back at his ass. They call you yuck mouth. <laughs> you refuse to brush no sweetheart. You can keep that kiss. Like, think about that. You know, yeah, I'm not talking yeah, about yeah. just Lawrence and Queen Latifah. I'm talking about Trina. You don't know now that that ride like me. That's the response. So, Rap has been very socially ahead of the curve. Let me give rap as a genre that. Now, what I would like to see more of is the rappers and the people involved in rap, meaning the people that make money from us, mm -hmm. the large corporations and the medium corporations. I wish to see them get more involved in protecting our rights. And, and what I mean on a local level, there was a move to make sure at a few years ago, the studios closed at a certain time. And, they was, and we were like, yo, we're the reason that this city has become a nightlife hub, is a cultural hub for music and art. We want the same type of deal you give the movie studios. Don't fuck with us. There was right. a move to push against Atlanta strip clubs. First of all, I'm pro-organizing with the strippers. I'm down for you ladies having a union. You certainly deserve that. But with, with dancers, if you don't have the Blue Flame Lounge, how do you get the hits? Because the hits, before they ever played on radio, are played by Swamp Izzo and DJ Greg Treat in the Blue Flame Lounge. So if you don't get, if you don't get the literally the community, the Blue Flame is in the Collier Heights community. Y'all Google that. If you don't get that all-black community with that black-owned club, that with that juke joint feeling, producing an environment that hit records can get fostered up until they make it the radio, then you start to lose the cultural significance of music in Atlanta. 
And if Forbes says that the largest cultural export is R&B and rap music out of the United States right now, for the last 20 years, you could be arguing that that's Atlanta from crunk music to now. So all these things are intertwined, you know, and that's, that's my thing is what rap needs to understand and realize is we have a greater responsibility and say in local and regional politics that we give ourselves credit for, and we should start taking advantage of that. My goal in my lifetime is to see rappers and athletes in Atlanta become a business and middle class because we've been denied that other places. You go to a, a hip hop club in New York, the club is owned by somebody who doesn't look like you. They have dress codes that don't identify with anything from, of the culture. And it's weird when you get in there because you feel like a guest in a house you built. When you go to L.A., mm. there's some similar thing. When you come to Atlanta, Birmingham, Savannah, Charlotte, um, Jacksonville, Tampa, you know, it doesn't feel like that. It feels right. like you own it because you do. So my goal is to see us. I want to see black people have a political path. I would like to see black musicians and artists and athletes form political packs because we need to be involved, but only for those who truly want to be, who really, who really going to be advised by good people to have good counsel. Everybody else, when you see the people moving in a direction, just move with the people, make, you know, make music if you don't want to be involved. Like, just, just keep it the art. But for the people who want to be involved in the political process, absolutely, I think there should be more of us. So all the people that were formerly executives or currently executives, we need your organizational um, skills to help us get voter drives going. So that the young people that are complaining in the streets and, and, and they have an opportunity to change stuff from a legislation perspective. But that only happens when you use the marketing savvy you use to sell them a pair of sneakers or the marketing savvy you use to sell them, you know, streams and tapes. We need to take our talents locally and regionally and also use them to make sure our people um, are prospering and, and, and the proliferation of success goes beyond just the records. Mike, I wanted to ask you about, speaking of Atlanta, I wanted to ask you about your comments in, in May when folks were you know, getting violent in the city. I wanted to ask you about what you said during that mayor's press conference. And, you know, a lot of folks, you know, reacted in different ways to that. You know, a yeah. lot of folks, you know, gave you praise for it. And then other folks, you know, had some criticism yeah. for it, it because, it, yeah. uh, you know, folks, you know, said, hey, well, this guy maybe owns property in the area. Yeah. You know, just trying to protect his property. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to that. Well, I was taught, I, you, you can't, I didn't want to go and I didn't have nothing positive to say. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I went, I went because my friend who has become more social and politically aware in the last few years is a guy named Tip Harris. And that's my friend. And we own a business together called Bankhead Seafood, um, along with a man named Noel Khalil, we, who, who's a friend and mentor. We're two boys from the neighborhood and we got paid and we could have moved outside the neighborhood and we could have took singing and dancing as the only thing we cared about. And we could have, you know, moved off to even L.A.'s and New York's and we did. Tip got his first music money and he did not go buy a kilo of cocaine. He went and bought a construction company and he started building houses right there in our community. I, I and my wife started investing in the same community I grew up in about 10 years ago. So even as individuals, we were already committed to the West Side. What you were seeing was three kids from the West Side. You know, one was a high school dropout, went on to become a multimillionaire. One was a college dropout, went on to become a Negro rich millionaire. One finished high school and college, went on to become a politician and mayor of the city. So I know that that's not true of a lot of cities where it should be true. That should be true in Flint. That should be true in Detroit. That should be true in Washington, D.C., more so than it is. It should be true in Harlem. It should be true in Inglewood. You know, it should be true in every city where we hold 
um, a significant number of a majority, but it's not. Atlanta is one of the rare cities, even in all those imperfections, we have a long way to go, but it is a rare city where you see 50 years of black mayoral leadership and 50 years of black prosperity. Doesn't mean we're as prosperous as we could be, should be, or deserve to be. What it means is that three kids from the West Side who all grew up working class or could be argued poor, managed through hard work, through skill and determination. Because see, none of us were born to, Keisha's father was a, was a musician, but that don't mean much. That don't make you royalty or the bourgeoisie. You know, Tip's dad was a hustler. My father and mother were teenage parents who shouldn't have had me and my mother's parents raised me. So you got to look at that. So Atlanta is a city where these three people can somehow ascend to the, to the highest ranks of influence in the city and leaving a pathway for others to do it. I didn't go to Jefferson High. I didn't go to Jackson High. I didn't go to no high name for no white man. I went to Frederick Douglass High School. Our rival was Benjamin E. Mays High School. My teachers went to Booker T. Washington High School and later to Morris Brown, Morehouse, Clark, and FAMU. My entire experience has been black. My heroes have been black. My villains have been black. So what I was saying in that moment had nothing to do with my property because we can rebuild property. Brick and mortar can be replaced. It had everything to do with not letting hopelessness set so far in that we took our anger that was being righteously raised in the middle of downtown west. Our neighborhood is four miles west. My thing was, let's make sure that you enclose or fortify this city because even at its worst, it provides opportunity for black people that is found nowhere else in the world. And I've been around the world. I have not been around the country. I've been around the world. And I'm going to tell you, everywhere I go, we the lowest on the totem pole. I don't care if you're in Moscow. I don't care if you're in the UK with black and brown people fighting for their rights now. If you're in Perth, Australia with indigenous black people, I mean with indigenous aboriginals and with black people who are there as immigrants. Like we're on the bottom. In this city, I'm just saying, man, it's worth saving. And that saving doesn't only happen by saying stop, don't loot, right? Because Dave's cheesesteak, who's owned by a young black man whose business got, got mobbed on, he had given 20000 for COVID relief. And with the money that he got to repair his shop, he repaired the shop in the, the overflux of money he gave to other black businesses to build. That's what makes Atlanta special. The fact that we can take care of our own. So all I was saying to Atlanta is let's support the national. Let's support everybody who's burning, looting, fighting, shooting to live, to be free. Let's support them. But you don't support them by burning down the fort you have for them. What I know Atlanta to be is a place where Pascal's restaurant offered an opportunity for Dr. King to come in and organize without fear of an FBI um, camera or, or phone. I mean, FBI wire. What I know is Herman Russell opened up his home so that the civil rights leaders could organize. We have so many brilliant, beautiful organizers on the streets of Atlanta. We have so many people who are unnamed, who are not given the credit they deserve, who don't have the national attention, who are working hard every day in this city. You know what I mean? And all I want for them is to, after the explosion, the, the rightful explosion of emotion, is for them to have an environment where they can continue to organize. People like Gary Davis at Next Level Boys Academy, Sister Latanya over at Park Kids Academy. So... For me, my call was specifically for Atlanta. So everybody who wanted to criticize, you know, outside of that, wasn't talking about your city, was just talking about mine. And what I wanted to see afterwards was the people that were in the streets 
have an opportunity to truly plot, plan, strategize, organize, and mobilize. That is the way they're going to capitalize. And so I support them. I support the protest. I'm not mad at it. Paul Judge and Ryan Glover, who own the agency, was an upscale restaurant owned by black men in Phipps. They not mad that their place got destroyed. They was like, we understand, we'll rebuild. Days from Days Cheesesteak was like, we understand, we'll rebuild. The bullet that came through the window of our shop, we'll replace the window. We're going to frame the whole window up. But what we're, what we're not going to do is get hopeless. We're, we're not going to give up. We're not going to let ourselves remain in a place of despair. I believe in Atlanta. I believe in the organizers and the young people that are on the streets. And I believe they're going to plot, plan, strategize, organize, and mobilize and capitalize on this moment. So my critics... You have your right to critique me. I'm busy working, so I didn't see much of what you guys said. And to my congratulators, you're out here doing the work with me, and, and I'll be happy to see you as we push forward. Now, you speak about specific needs that Atlanta has. I want to talk about that. I want to ask you specifically about police violence, uh, police reforms. Every city has its own specific needs. We can't necessarily talk about police violence and abuse in, in sort of a general sense. You know, every city has its own problems. What does Atlanta need to do? Part of the reason I supported Bernie Sanders was his pop, the policy he wanted to enact that would make punishing police easier on a federal level, that would make police abuse a federal offense. Nationally, what we can do is require um, Sanders' policy out of whoever we back. We want to see these people be able to go to jail because the most dangerous thing I heard in the last five years was Jeff Sessions say that law enforcement is a part of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant history. That enables policemen to kill you at will, because that's the history of the police, slave catching. Yep. That allows three white boys who feel they want to be police to hunt you down and murder you in Brunswick, Georgia, because that's slave catching. So we have to do something federally to attack that. Now, on the local level, on Atlanta, we've long had a citizen's review board. Every city mm -hmm. needs a citizen review board. Let me say that. What right. Atlanta needs is to strengthen theirs. We have the power to subpoena, but we need stronger power. There needs to be a citizens review board that is diverse as a, and, I'm, and I don't mean diverse in terms of getting to people that's different shades of a color. I mean diverse. The brother Kalanji, who's a fierce anti-police organizer down here, should be on that board, along with former police officers should be on that board who kept mm -hmm. it square. It's just time. The same way that a policeman killing a black man in the streets serves as an example that we hold ultimate power and we will punish you. It is time to fully prosecute and punish rogue police officers because the minute a crow sees a scarecrow, he understands that I might not want to go in that field. I'm not against police. Again, my dad was a cop when I was young. Two family members that are currently policemen. Pray for them daily. They're good men. I like that I live in a city in Atlanta where if I'm pulled over, I don't have to be afraid that I'm going to die in that moment because the cop probably looks like me or knows somebody who does. You know? But with that said, we still have a long way to go. We still can do much better. We can do better in terms of our prosecutor's office prosecuting bad cops. We can do better in terms of making sure that internally cops are policing one another. So that hunter-prey mentality has to get out of our police force. That looking for action, adrenaline junkie cop is not, not sick. They should just go serve in special forces in the military. Go off abroad and see how you fare in the jungles against a, a credible enemy that's armed as well. But you don't need to be beating up college students and dragging them out of a car because you want them to be home at nine o'clock. You should just simply say, take your ass home. It's nine o'clock. Mm. We'll get some therapy. Uh, yeah, but that yeah. ain't on our dollar. Go get therapy after you're no. not a cop no more. You know, right. go be a pro right. wrestler or some shit. <laughs> exactly. 
I want to ask you about, you mentioned your dad. How did his work inform your politics as you were you know, growing up? My dad's just first and foremost a black man. You know, uh, Officer Dollar, who was killed, who was my friend Cameron and uh, Jasper Dollar, mm. they, he, he was the reason that cops in Atlanta, Andrew Young, took him from uh, revolvers and semi-automatics after his murder. Detective Williams, who was a, a detective who was shot in the neck by a, by a young suspect and still worked in the schools and was just a hell of a mentor to us. Uh, my cousin Christopher, who's younger, but who's been a leader since he was a child. My cousin Sean. All these men were first and foremost black men. And mm -hmm. they've had the same thoughts and concerns and fears as a black boy in terms of safety, in terms of dealing with the police. They had the same thoughts and concerns as a black teenager in terms of they don't want to get pulled over, you know, right or wrong. And they've had the same thoughts and concerns as black fathers and cousins and uncles. So you don't divorce being black because you work for the state. You don't divorce. You know, it's like when I see that I'm black and I'm proud clip with the soldier. He's sitting there and he's holding He's holding rank, and, and then it gets to him. You know, he has to just mumble yeah. it because it, it, I love being black. My father and my cousin, my uncles love being black. Um, and with mm -hmm. that said, uh, it can be dangerous as fuck, to quote my man Carlos for a while and out. And my father, I respected him, and he was a hero because he was my dad. With or without the band, he sent me a picture of him and his um, now divorced, but my, my original stepmom, my mom too, sent him a picture <laughs> of him just standing outside his patrol car and I remember just how proud I was to have a dad because he protected me. And the mm -hmm. fact that he put on the uniform and, you know, I'm, I'm five years old. I'm like, hey, man, my dad's <laughs> going to protect everybody. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, this guy's a soup. He has an afro. He gets to carry a gun. Like, I was like, he was, oh, man, it was the illest shit in the world. I was like, this man is the illest. But um, I remember how dangerous it felt when I started to realize, like, the relationship of the police and the public wasn't, you know, I remember when crack hit in the turn. You know, I, I know my dad still wears an ankle um, pistol to this day as a backup. He carries, his, he carries a concealed weapon on his hip and he keeps one on his ankle because it's that dangerous, you know? And I remember the environment um, of danger. I remember like when the world started turning upside down and getting darker and realizing that, you know, about say 10 or 11, like, you know, all cops ain't heroes. Like by the time I was 12, you know, and drugs had fully hit and they were using us essentially for runners and lookouts. The cops just started handling. There was no more officer friendly after sixth grade. You know, it was all, you know, and right. so you got to look at from, say, six years old to 12 years old. That's a six year difference. But within six years, you understood that that, nah, this is not officer friendly, that the world is the world is, is wild and cops are not all good. And, you know, it, it changed my perspective. And I got radicalized by NWA and PE and, <laughs> you know, because those things were needed. Yeah. But at the same time, because I knew black police officers, my logic forced me to understand the balance that the problem isn't even white cops versus black person. Because with KRS is one black cop, black cop, black cop, black cop. What I right. understood is that the power of the state can corrupt good people. The, right. Having the amount of power that police have on the ground. And my father helped me understand this. You know, when he gave me that talk that all black parents have to give their children, I know white parents may not be as familiar with this talk, but there's a talk that black parents have to have black children, especially black boys, on how to survive a police encounter. You know, my father simply told me, son, there is no disrespectful way to say yes, sir, and no ma'am. So no matter what happens, you, you know, you state your name, don't answer too many questions, you invoke your fifth, but you simply, you simply say yes, sir, and no ma'am, and if they lock you up, shut the fuck up until we come to get you. That's mm -hmm. it. 
just like the Pot Brothers and Lante. Just, you know. Two again, hands about, like, on the wheel. Like, to, like, keep, like them hands, keep them hands. Tell the cop, I need to reach. Or I'm going to tell you what I learned to do. Time, I got pulled over three days ago. I'm mm. coming. I, I knew it was coming because I was going 10 miles over the speed limit. I said, he's going to hit me. It's a speed trap. He hit me. By the time he walked to us night, my window was down. My hand was out the entire time. The other hand on this night. And it was simply, simply, this is me. This is who I am. Not answering questions on what my day is going like. Yes, I knew I was speeding. If I get a citation, that's fine. Cop ended up looking at it. You know, he said, I just appreciated your honesty. He didn't even ticket me that day. But I, mm-hmm. I didn't give him any measure for what's I mean, it's a shame you have to do it, but you have to do it. On another political note, you mentioned Bernie Sanders, too. So I, I yeah. wanted to get into a little bit of, you know, obviously, you know, you've been supporting him, you know, last two presidential runs. I wanted to get into, you know, your support for him. I wanted to understand exactly what did you first see in him? And he's reaching for the sky with his, with his proposals. How is that inspiring you? And I think in a lot of good ways. How does that inspire you in this particular moment? with people reaching for the sky, with defunding the police, with all these other proposals that people are putting forward to help, you know, essentially Black Lives Matter in America. So look, I want people to Google Lucy Parsons. I want people to Google Eugene Debs. I want people to, you know, do better research on Dr. King's philosophy of the last two years of life. I want people to understand that we are a part of an over a hundred year movement. The progressive movement did not start and will not end with Bernie Sanders. The progressive movement did not start and did not end with Dr. King. It did not start and not end with Baynard Rustin. It did not start and end with Paul Lawrence Dunbar. It did not start and end with even Debs. It is the people's struggle not to be ruled by a master class. And that's regardless of race. Now, in particular, in matters of race, Bernie's policy was the closest policy that I had seen to Dr. King's poor people referendum or poor people's campaign. That's what attracted me in terms of politically. Uh, from a personality standpoint, he's a friend. He's a quirky old white Jewish guy. He's, he has a mean jump shot and bank shot. I, I like him a lot, but that's not what made me support him. What made me support him was his policy. I'm interested in the religious and the spiritual undertones of the new record. You know, at, w- at one point, I think you rapped that the, the mission is spiritual, not political. Yeah, uh, it's just one line, but I was fascinated by it. There's other religious references on the album throughout. How would you sum up your religious and spiritual views now, and how do they influence your music? Um, I told Tavis Smiley just years ago. Um, <laughs> he assumed I was a Christian. I was raised in a Christian household. I studied the Islamic doctrine under the Nation of Islam and Al Islam. Um, after that, so I was introduced through black radical Christianity through the black church and through liberation church. And some of the preachers I had, I was introduced through what they call a militant uh, version of, of Islam, the Mesa Islam and took me to Al Islam. And um, mm-hmm. I've studied the, the works of, you know, the, the black Hebrews. I've studied different black sects. What I realized probably about 19, 20 years old is that no Abrahamic religion was for me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. On a historical basis, they all have used and abused us at sometimes the institutions, not the actual religion. And once I found from my studies with people like John Henry Clark, Dr. Asa Hilliard, Chanta Diop, um, essentially that all these spiritual systems are based on African systems of spirituality. I got more in tune with what I was the day before any Christian, Muslim, or Hebrew stepped foot in Africa. And so, you know, my most honest 
answer, you know, is um, I am a product of the great living universal God. I view God as a woman, so I appreciate her for putting us here. And I view her in particular as a black woman because that was the first human being on earth. So mm -hmm. to me, that is the highest vessel that, uh, that in creation of God. So my business is to try to honor that in my ways, words, and actions. You know what I'm saying? And I'm a rapper. I can be potty mouth, so I've spent enough time getting checked by my sisters, mamas, daughters, you know. But I believe that whatever put us here as the original people, black people as original people, loves us. And loves us before any book was written. And they'll love us after every book and library burns. I believe that that thing created life in the eastern horn of Africa to populate this world and that the world uh, should honor that. I think that the story of Christ is a beautiful story in which the state kills the hero at the end. And if we pay more attention to that part of the story, we'll trust the state less. I believe the church conspired in that story with the state to kill him. So I believe that we should maybe be a little more suspect of the church. I think that, um, you know, I told Tavis, I said, yo, I'm whatever black people were the day before other people came in. So in terms of my spiritual beliefs, my wife and I are probably more African-centered or are more African-centered in our spiritual beliefs. And like Dick Gregory said, you know, you want to see God, or see calm or peace, go outside, hold hands and look at a tree. You know, truly, you know, God is all around us in, in the most minute of animal to the most magnificent mountain. So I, I, am, I am probably more of what people would say more is African-centered in my spirituality. And, and far less. And, and as I get older, I get further and further away from Abrahamic religions. Although as books, they got some cool poems in them that you can use to, to refer to in speeches sometimes. Talking about structure and lacking thereof and making sense out of chaos. Sometimes I, I feel that way. And I don't mean this as a, an insult at all. I mean, I feel that way when I'm listening to your music. And, yeah. you know, when I'm listening to Run the Jewels. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, you know, it honestly, this is sort of almost like this sort of like futuristic, almost dystopian feel to it. You know, sometimes yeah. when I'm listening to it, do you feel like in, in that way, is it contemporary? You feel like in that way, does it reflect where we are in America? And if so, do you see any signs of hope? Do you feel like that's yeah, in our any way? Music is hope filled. So view Run the Jewels like this. All right. You remember they live with Roddy Roddy Piper in it. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, you yeah. You remember yeah. Escape from yeah, New York? Yeah, on the glasses over there. Yeah. 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 Oh, you yeah. remember Escape yeah, from that. New York with Kurt Russell? Um, oh, yeah. Red Dawn. So imagine Run the Jewels is two 15 year olds stuck in the apocalypse trying to escape. Yeah. Right. Just trying to get to safety. That's essentially what we are. So the dystopian future vibes, the, the darkness, the danger around the corner of Yankee and the Brave. That's a real emotion. If you look at it, like I've always viewed Run the Jewels as an illustrated novel or movie or TV show because it gave me a chance to safely, see, as I'm Killer Mike and I'm rapping about this shit, I'm just a mad black man. Right. And it scares white people. If LP is just rapping about this shit as LP, oh, he's just a paranoid white guy, conspiracy theorist, and <laughs> black people don't get it. But together, oh shit, this shit makes sense. Mm. They don't even look alike. They're not even from the same place. They don't hold all the same views. But yet, if you listen to uh, Walking in the Snow, L's verse attacks literally the structure of this country and nationalism and Christianity and the things that you found that you believe in. He goes at it institutionally, and then I bring it right back home to the streets to say after we called out those institutions, here's a personal story of murder and death right in your face. So you can't escape it. 
no matter where you're going. So it literally, to me, me and L, this Run the Jewels experience is a show movie. It based on an illustrated novel of two 15-year-old kids surviving, thriving, escaping, and moving around in the apocalypse. Like when you listen to the first song, I am in a shootout with police with a handgun with one bullet left. It's over. Like you think, about it, oh, it's over. This is what a hero die. This motherfucker gonna die. And here comes L with a grand natural out of nowhere to save me. So it takes you out of reality, gives you the ability to suspend disbelief, and then go on this journey with us. Right. And at the end of the journey with Firing Squad, you hear "fuck you too," but you never hear gunshot. Mm. All I ask, man, and, and, don't and, end up don't end up like Keith David. In, yeah, they live, man. Just talk, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, we know, know what happened to Roddy Piper. You know, he, yeah. you know, don't end up like Keith David, man. That's all. But, <laughs> oh man, I love, yeah, you know y'all please go back. Movies, man. Please go back and watch all these cheesy movies these two old guys are talking about. You guys are gonna love them. The special I mean, effects are shitty, but you're gonna love the movie. But but all that to say, at the end of it, then you get the Yankee and the Brave, Brave, Brave. So you get to in your mind what I hope is that you see. The Yankee and Brave get to live another day, you know. So we're gonna. Yeah, I hear that. So the the, the 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 novel continues, you know, in my mind. But I, I don't lose hope, though. You know, to be, I don't lose hope. I don't ever lose hope because if black people lose hope, man, what else we got? If what else we got? But like I used to, I used to didn't understand all black people when they say shit like that. You know what I'm saying? But but it's the truth. You know, want to wind down, but I mean this. You know, a lot of folks, when they get to around like, you know, album three, four, five, I'm talking about, you know, you mentioned PE before, you know, Outcast, yes. Tribe, EPMD. I don't know. They start, I wouldn't say they start to peak per se, but it starts to be like, like with the stuff that they really known for. Where do you think Run the Jewels goes beyond this point? We're just getting started. There was a, there was a prerequisite mm. when we did it. We got to got four classic records. Now, I saw someone put that up this morning on a review and I saw that, that they've reached it. They've reached their four classics. So, Led Zeppelin, Outkast, A-Ball, MJG, UGK, EPMD, Tribe Called Quest, Beastie Boys, um, all had these four album runs that you got to have, to me, to, for us to even be considered a real group. We had to, mm -hmm. if this one wouldn't have worked, like, it not wouldn't have worked, if this one wouldn't have did exactly what we wanted to do, I'd have been like, nah, we got to go back to the drawing. Like, fuck that. We can't release this shit. You know, like, because my expectations and L's expectations was the four runs. Now we've gotten the four, now we can start. Now Run the Jewels starts. What you've seen with these four is the foundation. We've laid the four corners of the pyramid, but now we gotta go up to the point, you know? So the four corners are laid, here we go. Now we gotta raise that thing up at four different sides and get to a point. So I'm looking forward to 10, 15 more years of making fucking classic records. You know, I'm looking forward to what, what is post-Yankee and the Braves. Like this record is perfect for this moment, but I wanna make records for the next moment and the next moment after that. You know, I want to continue to bring people joy with punch you in your face. Here's a cup of coffee and a joint rap music. You know, I want to see parents still bringing their teenage kids out to say, yeah, this is that shit we jam together. I want to go out like we, when we went out on the Lord tour, one of the most beautiful things to me, because we took a Lord tour. She was a fan of ours. Lord is an amazing <laughs> songstress, but you're not yeah. going to think, you know, Lord <laughs> run the jewels. But when we went out on that stage and our fans were in the back of the audience more, but you saw the girls turn to their boyfriends and do this. And you saw the boyfriend smile like, yep, that's why I said I come to the fucking tour with you. Run the jewels, it's <laughs> flat. <laughs> and, 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 and what it took me back to was when I first went on, out, on tour with Outkast when they were, they were opening for Moby. Mm -hmm. I remember the looks that people would give each other in the crowd like, 
you fuck with Outkast, if you fuck with, that's where we are. We are exactly where Outkast was at, as they were peaking. Outkast, to me, never had to stop making music. You know, right. Dre found other stuff to be interested in, and he um, went into acting, and Big Boy's always been a superb businessman and kept a stellar solo career going. But Outkast, they, they're the Rolling Stones of rap music. They just never had to stop. My goal has always been that the Led Zeppelin in terms of the four-hour run, but my goal's always been to, in terms of performance for us to be ACDC. I want to be on mm-hmm. stage in diapers, goddamn, because you don't have to stop anymore. And I am honored to be in that place where I see Outkast be. Like, we're going to roll out opening for Rage, and shortly after that, I want to be rolling out our own. You know what I mean? So hopefully we'll build the numbers. Hopefully our audience will keep growing. Hopefully the people that have been supporting will keep supporting and will grow, and, and we'll rock out. I want to be 65 years old in black denim suits hitting the stage for y'all. You know? Why not? I want to march into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with my best friend. So that is our show for today. Thanks so much for Jamil Smith for conducting that great interview with Killer Mike of Run the Jewels. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. But as always, thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we will see you next week. Every story eventually comes to an end. This June, hear the final episode of Season 2 of the hit podcast series In the Red Clay, Durham. In the Red Clay tells the unbelievable true story of Billy Sunday Burt, the most dangerous man in Georgia history. In the podcast that people are calling riveting, incredibly moving, captivating, and addicting. Binge Seasons 1 and 2 of In the Red Clay now, wherever you listen. Hey guys, welcome to the Candy Valentino Show. I'm Candy Valentino. I was a founder before I could legally order a drink. And for more than two and a half decades, I've built, scaled, acquired, and exited multiple businesses in diverse industries. Now my goal is to help you by sharing the knowledge that I've learned, the mistakes that I've made, and the wisdom that I've developed over my journey. Bi-weekly episodes every Monday and Thursday. The Candy Valentino Show, wherever you listen.